0: So, good evening. I'm wondering how you're doing after this afternoon. Probably noticing a few more thoughts. A little bit more energy, anybody? A little bit more agitation or excitement or a little less still. Anybody know we're going home tomorrow? (laughs) In case you forgot. So it's natural, as you may have said, that the mind starts leaning forward with anticipation, excitement, curiosity, dread, anxiety, planning mind. And it's a really interesting part of the retreat and part of practice is how we transition, how how we are in the leaving of this form. And I want to talk tonight about how we uh, take this practice when we leave IMS and go back to wherever it is you go to, what that process is, some things that to consider and, and to reflect on as we do that. And to see that whatever happens this tonight, tomorrow morning, really is an integral part of the retreat, not just, ah, well, the schedule's almost done. I'm sort of done now. Let's get on with my life and check my emails and text messages and yada, yada, yada. Uh, There'll be plenty of time to do that. So relish this time still. But I also want to say before I sort of start the talk to um, just appreciate all of your practice and uh, it's been such a, a delight to teach this retreat it's we've all come to what an easeful um, retreat it's been and what a sincerity that's that you've all come with so you have made our jobs very easy and very happy i have to say and also just to reflect back since we sit up here and we get to see you all um how much you know we we get to and, and towards the end of the retreat we get to bask in the radiance of your practice And it's really beautiful, you know, to see the glow, the delight, the happiness, the joy, the open heartedness. Um, Even if you've had a hard retreat, there's still some quality that comes through of of that good intention uh, that you've been putting in all this time. So some people like to say that this point of the retreat as we're tomorrow is really the midpoint of the retreat. And the second half of the retreat is how we transition and how we take what we've learned here into our lives and our families and our relationships and our work. And so maybe to hold it like that uh, is an interesting place to play with. What does it look like this second half of the retreat? We're going back into a world where people haven't been necessarily spending 12 hours a day cultivating the intention to wish all beings happiness and (laughs) love and peace as you may know and at the same time we go back into a world that's not so different from here that people and experience is filled with the same things that we've been experiencing here of the joys and the sorrows and the beauty and the difficulty Um, and but at the same time we also do go back into a world that's troubled That hasn't changed so much since you left seven days ago, I'm sorry to say. (laughs) The way that people treat each other, the suffering, the warfare, the famine, the various catastrophes, the ecological crises has not gone away as you know. And so as we we enter uh, our lives and our Familiar places to, to to recognize that you're going in with that much more sensitivity, that much more open-heartedness, and to really treat that with some care and some respect and some some gracefulness, because it's not easy. It's not easy at the best of times to open to the joys and the and the sorrows of the world, and and right now as you as you're so much more attuned to your heart and to to the, 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 the plight of suffering in yourself and others, just to, 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 to ease back in gently. It's so easy for the heart to quickly recoil and contract, as you may know. So the question that I, I'm really trying to address this evening is how can we live a life that expresses, that's infused with these qualities of love, of compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. I came across this um, advice from uh, an elder. This story goes: this um, older woman was asked, who had, she was known for having a particularly bright complexion and very beautiful. And she was asked, what, what makes you so sparkly and radiant at this time in your life? And she said, I use my lips for truth. I use my voice for kindness. I use my ears for compassion. I use my hands for charity. I use my figure for uprightness. And use for my heart, love. And I use for any who do not like me, prayer. And that was a beautiful way of living and using one's life and one's body. D.H. Lawrence put it this way. He said, those who go looking for love never find love. Only the loving find love, and they will never have to look for it. So maybe in our lives, we've spent many a time looking for love, thinking it's somewhere outside of ourselves. And as this practice so beautifully, educates us, we come to realize the source of love is in our own hearts. That what we're so busily seeking outside of ourselves is really right here. We've been developing and cultivating it all week. And what we've also been cultivating in a very radical way is transforming the more unskillful states of mind of hatred, of anger, of fear, of contraction, of separation, and cultivating cultivating these very wholesome forces. And yet the point isn't to leave you tomorrow um, with just being these great meta meditators, you know. Good as that is, the point is to really bring these qualities into the world, into every aspect of our life. To live, to walk, to breathe these qualities of kindness, of care, of compassion. Bob Thurman makes this comment. He says, you know, Buddhists are always talking about practice, 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 practice. When's the performance? <laughs> so it's right now. It's right here, you know, and it's tomorrow morning. And it's standing at the bus stop and waiting at the airport in the ticket ca- the ticket counter. And it's sitting in a taxi in a cab in New York. And it's arriving home and meeting the kids. That's the practice, that's the performance, as it were, without, of course, giving yourself too much performance anxiety. (laughs) Or, as the Hopis say, you are the ones we've been waiting for. You are the ones you've been waiting for. It's not going to be, it's right now, it's right here, and it's within you. So, I like to tell one of my favorite Hafez stories. Uh, Hafez is a Sufi teacher and poet about a story about practice in our lives. He had a student come to him one day and was all excited about his visions of God, his mystical experiences in meditation, and so he comes to Hafez all excited and recounts his experience. And Hafez being this sort of wise but challenging teacher said well that's very interesting but how many goats do you have and the man said goats you're asking me about goats and I'm telling you about my visions of God he said yeah how many goats do you have you're a farmer so they have this conversation about his goats and then asks him a bunch of other questions are your parents still alive how do you take care of your staff do you look after the animals and feed the birds in winter a lot of questions about how he relates to life and the man answered all these questions, still bemused. What's this got to do about, you know, visions of God? And Hefe said, you ask me if your visions of God are true, and I say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person, every creature that you meet. That your practice, your realization for it to be fully matured has to manifest in the midst of your life. So a really important thing to remember as we transition from retreat to non-retreat is that um, as that saying goes, that's the name of John in his book, wherever you go, there you are. Wherever we go, there we are. Wherever you go, wherever you take your practice, wherever your heart is, there you are. So sometimes we have this idea that um, like we have to sort of drag this bundle of matter and the storehouse that we've sort of locked up in the safe here at, at IMS and take it home with us you know like we've sort of stored it in our bags or something and you know like Santa Claus we have to lug it around and you know dole it out here and there and what's important to remember is the practice is already within you that what you've been cultivating is within you and so wherever you, wherever you go, there your heart is. Wherever you go, that's what you bring with you, right? It's within you. And so no matter how far you go, and no matter how distant you feel from it, no matter how far you space out, or get caught in reactivity, which we will. Maybe by the time you get out of the parking lot, you know? <laughs> or maybe just you know checking your cell phone messages, and, and Then we go, oh my god, I can't believe I've gotten so reactive. I'm, I'm already calling the office and complaining about something and oh, What happened to my meta practice? I've been spending a whole week. I can't believe I've lost the a whole weeks just wiped out You know deleted I have to start again. My meta bank is just kind of <laughs> my balance is zero and Then we remember just like with mindfulness practice we space out we forget we get distracted we come back. Oh this moment it takes only a moment to come back to the heart, to remember that intention, to remember that wish, that, rem- that remember to be kind, to be embracing, to be caring, to be forgiving. And to trust the seeds of, of practice that you've sown. These seeds of intention take root and deepen and grow over time, but to trust in the seeds that you've already planted and nurtured. This is a part of a poem from Billy Collins. Again, speaking to this idea of um, this innate capacity we have to love. It's called Aimless Love. This morning as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse that cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress, still at a machine in the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth, steam rising like smoke from a naval battle. No waiting, no huffiness, no rancor, just a twinge every now and then for the wren who had built her nest on the low branch overhanging the water. But my heart is always propped up in a field on its tripod ready for the next arrow. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself ga- standing at the bathroom sink gazing down affectionately at the soap, so patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. I was talking to a friend of mine who's just had a baby. She's about three months now. Uh, Not my friend, the baby, that is. And... um, and she had a baby late in life. It was a late, sort of late decision. And um, she never, I think, saw herself as the natural maternal kind. And when I talked to her, she said, I can't believe I just know what to do. The baby's crying and I just love it. The baby's doing this, I just love it. And it was so sweet to see that instinctual knowing that we have, we know how to take care, we know how to love, we know how to respond to pain. I remember when I was te- teaching a, a meta retreat, um, the last retreat at Spirit Rock that I taught, and I, I like to do road, I like to go road biking when I'm when I'm there, and it's not twenty five degrees outside or minus twenty five degrees outside, and um, I was riding along, and I was taking I was doing a fast ride of this loop that we have outside of Spirit Rock, thinking I was going really fast, you know, and I was really in the groove, in the zone. And of course, somebody just cruises by, just effortlessly, just twice the speed I'm going, just, hmm, good morning. (laughs) I'm like, there wasn't much mudita happening right then. (laughs) And then as he sped off into the distance, you know, it became a speck, you know, within seconds. I caught myself that first that contraction, and then I thought, oh, we're both out riding. It's a beautiful day. May you have a great ride. And it just—it just—that's what's so beautiful about this practice—is it, it can in any moment we can just turn on a dime, from contraction from envy to appreciation, from from hatred to kindness. And you'll see that as you as you. Re-enter your world; that it will come back to you, and we can draw on that. We can remember. Mm, there's a. Great Tibetan teacher Togu Ugin, used to say, "Mindfulness is how would you say mindfulness?" He said something really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I remember he said, <laughs> "Mindfulness is easy. Remembering to be mindful is difficult. <laughs> remembering to say, remembering to <laughs> remember that is difficult." <laughs> so it's the same with metapractice. Meta-practice is in some way not so difficult, but remembering. And as, we, and as we sow these seeds of intention, we remember more easily. It's more accessible. So what I love about this practice is that it's so portable, so, so accessible. You know, We don't have to go off to a retreat center for months on end to develop these deep states of samadhi and refined awareness. You know, it just comes in the simple expression of a phrase, of a wish, may you be happy, may I be at ease, may we all be free from suffering. So we can do this anywhere, it's very portable. You know, one of the places I like to do it, I live in the Bay Area and there's a lot of traffic. And so I practice a lot sitting in my car. You know, we're f- you know, often the first input, the first response is, oh no, traffic, I'm gonna get to where I'm going late, what I drag, what are these people doing in my way? Don't they know I'm trying to get to the office in time? Yada, yada. And then, oh, I look around, it's like, and they're upset and they're angst-ridden and anxious and angry and, like, oh, yeah, we're in this together. You're also gonna be late. May you get to where you're going in time. May you be happy. May we all be safe. And just, it changes the whole experience from one of Separation and antagonism, and p- people are in my way to, oh, yeah, this, we have this human experience called traffic, and it sucks. And may we be free of suffering. <laughs> so, somebody mentioned that, that, that notion of stealth meta, you know, and it's a great, I, I like that because it really feels like that. Sometimes you can be sitting in the most dull meeting, you know, at work board meeting, whatever it is that you go, have to go to. Um, and you, you know, especially if you don't have so much to say, you don't to, if you're not participating so much, you can just sit back and wish people well, wish people happy. You know, in a difficult meeting or any, any work situation, it's a great place to practice that. On the subway, walking, So, and in, in that ordinariness of the Metta practice, we can, you know, since meta is so much about connection, and since we can often f- live or feel like we live such separate lives, one of the ways that I like to see meta manifesting is just by simply connecting, connecting with people in the very ordinary activities of our lives that we might often write off as boring or mundane or as tedious or not worthy of our attention so we rush through them and we don't take time to see that we're dealing with people just like us who may ap- who may detest the fact they work in a drugstore or in a supermarket or post office but that's that's their life and can we show up and meet them with presence with kindness and so when I go to the bank or the post office or the or the store I always try to make an effort to remember to connect to say hello or how are you doing or how's your day or when do you get off from your shift or and it really makes a difference same as um when i'm on the phone you know you get put on hold and then you get sent to some call center with united airlines to somebody in bombay or somebody in the philippines or wherever the the um the call center is and um I always, again, try to remember, oh, this is person's probably sitting in this huge warehouse with you know, several hundred cubicles, and you can usually hear the cacophony in the background. And I ask, where, oh, where are, you? Where, are you, where are you, where are you sitting today? Oh, I'm in Bombay, or I'm in Delhi, or I'm in New Jersey, or I'm in, you know. Um, and, and then just try to have some live connection. I was just uh, this teaching this retreat in Costa Rica, and one of the staff people used to work in one of the call centers for an airline. I forget which airline it was in um, in Costa Rica, and and I was telling him about m- this intention that I have to try and you know make some kind of connection and be really appreciative, and um, and he said, "Oh, that's really interesting because we have this sort of th- this is sort of a." Uh, um, some kind of a, a knowing in that, in that world where people, he, he, he remembers when he was working there that those kind of conversations would make his day. That it would take one customer who wasn't irate or angry, who was actually appreciative, where he felt like he'd really helped this person out in some way, that made his day, you know? And so it's, it's that simple when we can remember to get out of our own way a lot of the time. So it doesn't have to be, you know, maybe just as we may have had this notion of, of what metta and compassion is, which is, these, you know, maybe it's this idea of this very loft, grandiose, all-encompassing, love for all beings everywhere, um, which may, that is also a part of metta, but there's also just this simple, ordinary act of care and kindness. And so um, to let go of the notion of, you know, that you have to walk out of here like Mother Teresa and picking up every homeless person that you see or whatever, whatever grandiose notions you have, it's very simple, it's very ordinary. Here's a story, uh, again, which expresses the simplicity of this uh, quality that simply acknowledges another and is able to take in another with, with heartfulness. Somewhere on this in the south on a bus sat a wispy old man holding a bunch of fresh flowers. Across the aisle was a young girl whose eyes came back again and again to the man's flowers. The time came for the man to get off. Impulsively, he thrust the the flowers into the girl's lap. I can see you love the flowers, he said, and I think my wife would like for you to have them. I'll tell her I gave them to you, he said, as he got off the bus. The girl accepted the flowers, then watched the the old man get off the bus and walk through the gate to a small cemetery. This is from the poet Naomi Shihab Nye, who's putting it in another way. It's called Red Brocade. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, or where he's headed. That way he'll have enough strength to answer or by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts, here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve you water. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So speaking of Mother Teresa, (laughs) one of the things that I loved that she said, you know, she did such amazing work in the world and yet she was incredibly humble and also incredibly simple. When she was asked about how she started uh, with her first refuge in Calcutta. She said, I just picked up one body at a time. I just picked up whoever was in front of me. And then she adds a little later in the conversation, she said, You can only do small things, but you can do them with great care, with great love. You can only do small things. You know, we get, we get, we get sort of stymied sometimes by this idea of the grandiosity of how big something should be. But really, we just do whatever's in front of us, the next thing. I was teaching uh, a course down in Guatemala some years ago, um... And at the end of the retreat, we took a uh, sort of guided tour to the local village. And this retreat center does a lot of work uh, supporting the local villagers with education and uh, medical services and whatnot. And the owner of the retreat center told me this story about a previous retreat where they'd taken some people up to, to visit the, the school. And uh, this woman happened to work for Microsoft and was quite high up in the organization. And she saw that the the children had very, very basic amenities, barely a blackboard, barely any books. And because she worked for Microsoft, she thought she would go home and speak to whoever is in charge of um, donations and philanthropy and see if she could uh, arrange to have some computers and stuff donated. And so she went back and tried to do that. And for whatever reason, that wasn't possible. But the next time she went back to Guatemala, she took, out of her own money, she bought a whole bunch of computers and software and printers and just gave them to the school. It was a very simple, natural act of that care that comes when we connect, when we see the need and we respond. So matter is really a generosity of heart. You know, it's, it's, it's a practice of generosity. Maybe you felt that this week, that it's really a giving of our heart. Even saying the phrases is a generous practice to ourselves, to, our, to others. So one question that's useful to reflect on as you leave, as you go to leave, don't leave yet, you have a whole morning tomorrow, is to ask yourself, where is metta, where are these qualities of the heart most needed in your life? And just to reflect on that for a moment, where, where are these qualities most needed in your life? And some people spoke to it today in terms of work. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak to a few areas that you might reflect on about where the, these qualities may, may influence or interface. So the place that so often so many of us need this quality is, is in towards ourselves just as you may have noticed being here. That's the, often the hardest person that you were sending matter <laughs> to wasn't your difficult person. although that might've been challenging, but was to yourself. A lot of people reported that the difficulty, the, the feeling numb, the feeling dull, the feeling cool, the feeling unworthy, or just the, the lack of flow towards oneself. So, the practice would be begin by remembering our goodness, remembering our innate goodness, remembering our wish to be happy, that all beings deserve to be happy, including ourselves. To remember, as Walt Whitman puts it, and as to me, I know of nothing but miracles. As to me, I know of nothing but miracles. So it's learning to accept ourselves as we are, forgiving ourselves for our foibles, Accepting and embracing our humanness. What would it look like to actually accept yourself as you are in the context of your life and your family, your relationships? This is from the cartoon strip Charlie Brown Peanuts. I'm going to show my Englishness because I don't really know this cartoon very well, actually. So it's Lucy, right? It's Lucy, this is the the girl, okay? Lucy says, I hate everything. I hate the world. Charlie says, I thought you had inner peace. Lucy, I do, but I still have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) So embracing our humanness. So, ways that we can express this quality of kindness to ourselves, first to our bodies. Do you remember how tired many of you arrived here? Many of you talked about being exhausted and needing to sleep for days. Often that's an example of how we push our bodies, how we override them, how we don't listen to the body's limits. And so the first place we learn to take care of is this vehicle, this temple, this body. It's a great reference point for how we're doing in terms of our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to how this quality of kindness is manifesting. One of my favorite Spanish proverbs that I learned when I was visiting there was, uh, it goes, it is beautiful to do nothing and then rest afterwards. <laughs> Only in the country that invested the siesta would that Phrase arise so what would that be like for you to do nothing and rest afterwards in the middle of your busy life maybe oh well I don't have time I'm too busy and I've got too many projects and yada 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 but to listen to take care to not override is an expression of matter our body has a great deal of wisdom and knowing and if we ask and we listen if we attune you know the body will often give us an answer no That's not a wise thing to take on this extra project, or to travel here, or to do this. The body knows so much of the time. Taking care of our body, um, keeping the right company. Very important part of how we live in the world is the company that we keep. The people that we surround ourselves with have a very strong influence over us. The Buddha talked a lot about keeping the company of the wise because of, the, because of that effect people have on us. He said, if you can't find any wise people, be alone. <laughs> Maybe you don't have that choice. <laughs> but again, as, as, a, as a sign of respect and care for yourself, what company do you keep? And does that support your values and your heart and your well-being? David White, the poet, writes at the end of a poem, anyone who does not bring you alive is too small for you. So another thing that often we neglect to do in our lives, um, which seems sort of odd to say, but um, as part of taking care of ourselves is to, you know, as we've been turning a little to this quality of mudita, to joy, to, to happiness, as Sally spoke to the other night, To cultivate joy in our lives, to take time to do things that gladden the heart, to bring balance to our lives that might be difficult or challenging or that our hearts might be burdened by the suffering in the world. What do we do to bring balance through joy, through gladness, through things that make our hearts sing? You know, and I often, you know, I work individually with a lot of people and I am often amazed how people put that quality of their lives last Well, I work and I take care of, you know, people and business and my finances and, oh, and, and that, and that thing about having fun or, you know, doing something delightful, like uh, that often gets left behind. And I see this sort of dampening of the spirit that creates. And so, so for some people it can be, it can be an expression <laughs> of kindness. If that's not, if that's lacking in your life to give that to yourself to do what allows the heart to sing. I remember when I was writing about nature, I wrote a book on meditation and nature, and um, you know, it's like any phase, as any uh, writing of a book, there are phases that are very intensive and require a lot of focus and not a lot of time for anything else. And I was working as well, so I was working and writing, um, and wasn't walking my talk about having joy in my life at that time, and it was getting a little grim, a little dour. And, um, and I called a friend and sort of complained about the state of things. And he said, what are you doing for joy in your life? You know, you, you, know, I, I, you do one thing a day that brings you joy. And I was like, what a great idea. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> <laughs> and so for me, the thing that brings me most joy is being out in nature. And it was uh, winter. It was a particularly rainy winter uh, in California where it rained pretty much solidly for two months which I happen to love because I'm English and we just used to (laughs) like the rain. And and so I hiked, I just put on my full waterproof gear and I hiked through the redwoods every day for two months through the gales and storms and I completely loved it. And of course I was writing about meditation in nature so it was perfect. This is from the poet Hafez. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. (laughs) Sounds kind of obvious, but, you know, we kind of mix them a lot, don't we? Have you noticed that? And you have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for fun. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun to to me. Let's start laughing and drawing blueprints and gathering our talented friends. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix those, mix those. So what would that be for you? Those ingredients that turn your life into joy. And does your life provide for them? Does your life make room for them? Do you allow space for those ingredients? So there's taking care of ourselves, this expression of kindness for ourselves, there's this expression of kindness and care towards others. And at a certain point in our practice, and I, knew that I know this from my own experience, that, that seeing how all of the, the practices that we do, uh, it only makes sense when, they, when our heart and our lives are expressing that wish to care for others, to take care to bring those qualities into the world. At some point, that, that seems to be the thing that makes the most sense, is to bring this quality of care and kindness into the world. This is from the poet Rumi, he says, every growing thing as it grows says this truth. You harvest what you sow, with life as short as a half taken breath, don't plant anything but love. You harvest what you sow, with life as short as a half taken breath, don't plant anything but love. And as you can see, we do harvest what we sow. We spend a week of really deepening this, this attitude and quality of matter. And what happens? Do you feel more in, in touch with matter? Yes? <laughs> Good. I'm sweating there. It works. Good. Tick on this. <clears throat> So, part of, this, part of this orientation as we take this practice into our lives and our relationships, partly it's a, there's, a, there's an attunement that happens where we um, become more sensitive as we become more sensitive to our own, human dilemma, human predicament, we become more aware and attuned to the sensitivity, the vulnerability, the fragility of what it means to be a human being. That every person has their own form of suffering. No matter how joyful, no matter how successful, how wealthy, how whatever we think happiness is, everybody uh, has their own burden, their own suffering and so we can become attuned to that we can become we can hold that as part of our greater sensitivity when we know everybody's been asked to carry their own burden do you know anybody who's gotten through life without a burden i don't then we naturally become more more sensitive and more kind we see we share this shared human vulnerability and when we're less caught up in ourselves or wrapped up in ourselves we can see this more clearly and that naturally makes us want to act with more tenderness more kindness and it can be very simple as you know as the things I've mentioned feeding the birds in winter watching people go outside and feed the chickadees out in the woods it could be that simple could be just taking time to be with a friend, to call someone you know who's in distress. Or, as people talked about today, today how would it be to turn that, to take that attitude towards your clients, to see them anew, to see them afresh, and not to try to push them into your agenda? Or to see your colleagues in a way, to see their humanness. You know, we often so, so easily perceive people through their own role and their own identity or their own position or through, from the vantage point of our own position. There's a lovely phrase that I like from Zen Master Bankai who says, don't side with yourself. What would it be to not side with yourself? To take a very different vantage point. So it's l- so much less oppositional. So this is a, this is a story Um, from Dr. Richard Selzer, who's speaking to this idea of um, how exquisitely we can be attuned to the suffering of another and respond appropriately with a kind, compassionate response. He writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish almost. A tiny twig of the facial nerve the one to the muscles of her mouth had been severed. She will be thus from now on. As a surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her, husband is, her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they, I ask myself. He and this wry mouth who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in." So that's a beautiful story of how exquisitely attuned we can be to another's suffering. So we do this spontaneously, naturally, and we also can do it as a practice. Just like you've been developing the practice here internally, we can make the intention to make this more conscious part of our lives. As a Tibetan saying, if you want to be happy, serve others. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. So how would that look in your life? To practice compassion, to bring it more, to allow it to infuse what you do in your work, in your relationships, in your families, in your community. I'm always inspired when I hear the statistics on um, the amount of hours that are donated, uh, given by people volunteering in this country. It's billions and billions of hours. People give of their time and their services um, very freely to help each other. You know? And that's just the ones that are recorded. There's also some great statistics about this this younger generation is the most actively um, engaged in terms of uh, service and service projects abroad since the 60s since the Peace Corps was was uh, started so lots of ways that this can happen both both broadly and also personally and for each of you it will be different Maybe it's already happening in a very fluid way in your lives, and, and I get hearing from you that you're, a lot of you are engaged in beautiful work, teaching and researching, and in psychology, psychotherapy, like and educating. So in a way, you're already many of you are, are already in this groove, and yet no matter what we do, we can still learn to deepen this quality in in the the in, in the, the minutia of what we do. Here's another story. This is story time session tonight, I guess. Um, I love this story, being a a nature boy that I am. Uh, This is a story from uh, from a while ago. In the 30s, a young traveler was exploring the French Alps. He came upon a vast stretch of barren land. It was desolate and forbidding and ugly, kind of place you hurry away from. Then suddenly the young traveler stopped dead in his tracks. In the middle of the vast wasteland was a bent over old man. On his back was a sack of acorns. In his hand was a four feet length of iron pipe. The man was using the pipe to punch holes in the ground and then later to put acorns in the holes. And the the old man told the traveler, I've planted over 100,000 acorns. Perhaps only a 10th of them will grow. The old man's wife and son had died and this was how he chose to spend his final years I want to do something useful, he said. 25 years later, the now not as young traveler returned to the same desolate area. What he saw amazed him. He could not believe his own eyes. The land was covered with a beautiful forest, two miles wide and five miles long. Birds were singing, animals were playing, and wild flowers perfumed the air. The traveler stood there recalling the desolation that once was. A beautiful oak forest stood there now, all because somebody cared. So I don't know if you're gonna go out and plant 100,000 acres. <laughs> but this, the spirit of that story is beautiful and that each of us will have our own expression of that. So to not want to burden you with a, with a to-do list of things that you should be doing after you leave retreat because maybe you're already doing them anyway, maybe, this, maybe, you're already, maybe there's, there's always a, or, already a channel of kindness flowing. One of the things that we, that we most easily overlooked is the gift of our presence. That our, the quality of our presence is probably the most invisible thing to us. And yet it's often the thing that is most beautiful and dear and, and precious thing that we can give to somebody. Just by being that, just by showing up with our attention, with our time, with our openness, and to to not underestimate the power of that, the the power of that force of our presence to be an expression of our kindness. A great example of that is, um, is Aung San Suu Kyi, whose presence, whose radiant presence burns really bright in Burma for the last several decades, and that quality of her presence gives so much courage and hope and fearlessness to many of her people. So I want to say a little before I close about um, practicing where it can be really difficult in our lives, and that's often with people who share the last name as us, people that we're more in intimate relationship with, family, friends, parents, children, loved ones and as we leave the retreat there's often an excitement about going home and visiting and sharing and catching up and um, so just a few cautionary things about all of that. Uh, One is to be uh, to be watchful of becoming a meta evangelist So you know how you take on a new practice or you learn something and you really love it and it's so exciting to you and you can't wait to share it and tell Mm -hmm. everybody how good it is and how much better they would be if they were practicing it and how the world would be improved if they were doing it. And go slowly with that one. (laughs) So there's a line that some yogi quoted to us some many years ago, something like, my family loves me when I'm a Buddha and hates me when I'm a Buddhist <laughs> or an evangelizing, proselytizing one. So we less need to teach and more need to show by example, especially with the children. You know, children mostly look at what we do, not what we say. Or well, they, they would look to see if, we're, if they're in sync. So um, another thing that happens when we, when we have a whole week to, you know, think is that we reflect a lot on our relationships and on our friends and family and loved ones and and we often have a lot of insights about them that we also can't wait to share with them when we get home (laughs) and tell them all the ways they need to grow and develop and (laughs) how they'd be so much happier if they did this this and this so again be very gentle with those insights they may be best kept to yourself And again, to give this gift that you've, you've cultivated this beautiful quality of presence, of kindness, of awareness, love, and make that your gift. You know, again, with the silence, we're often so keen to share every single little morsel of every little minute detail that happened. And um, most people just wanna know that you're happy, that you had a good time. And give them, you return the favor of just giving them all this presence you've been nurturing and developing. And as um, we've been pointing out with the, the near enemy of matter, of attached love, you know, it's one of the stickiest places to work with. You know, because we have a lot of preferences and a lot of ideas and attachments about how our loved ones should be, right? How we'd like them to be, how we think they should be. And so to see if you can Maintain some awareness of that and to see the distinction between when we hold them with that unconditional regard Versus holding on to some Attachment of how we'd like it to be and our relationships are rarely ever how we'd like them to be So, how do we practice that and also how do we? forgive ourselves and tread gently with ourselves in that arena? This is from bizarro cartoon. This is a picture of a man. He's just got home from work. And uh, there's a note pinned on the front door, presumably by his, his spouse. And it says, Dear Kirby, after all the years of meditation, and in spite of your endless ridicule, I have finally attained universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere and nowhere, non-existent and eternal, all being and all-knowing. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. <laughs> so that's not wise speech, just in case anyone was wondering. So what would it look like to go home to a uh, family, friends, community, and to accept and love people as they are. What an amazing thing that would be. To at least have that intention. Of course we'll fail. Of course we will forget. Of course we'll get caught in our own attachments and preferences. And then we see that, and we let go, and we start again. So lastly... Just some simple supports for meta. Remembering that we all share this basic goodness. One of the things I like to do when I'm having trouble with somebody and I've totally forgotten about that they have any goodness whatsoever, never mind innate basic goodness, is to um, imagine them as young children or babies. You know, and even the person, the most the person who seems most difficult or cruel, even. When I imagine them as a baby coming into this world with a lot of innocence and purity and beauty, it's a little hard to hold that tight fist of whatever I have with them, grasping aversion. And to remember that everybody wants to be happy no matter how stupidly they might behave. Forgiveness, we've talked a little about forgiveness practice here. Um, forgiving ourselves, forgiving others for all the things that we do, all the places we get caught, all the places we get reactive, all the times that we lose contact with metapractice, with the compassionate heart, can we forgive ourselves and not, and this is a really important piece to, as Sally talked about the other night, to watch the newly birthed, the metacritic, or the compassion critic, or the Brahma-Vihara critic. You may find as you leave the retreat, you suddenly have a new flavor of critic, which is, well, that wasn't very metaphor, and that's not very compassionate, and that's a little envious. You should be having much more mudita than that to see how the critic can usurp anything, especially these ideals, and bash us over the head with them. We're not good enough. We're not kind enough. We're not loving enough. And to remember the power of gratitude, appreciation, gratitude for what we have, gratitude for what people have done for us. And lastly, the power of equanimity. All these practices work so beautifully together compassion, metta, mudita, equanimity. As I was going up to my room, as I'm sure you've all noticed this, the picture, the Zen picture up the stairway, I thought this was a a good phrase to um, reflect on as we go home. People notice the the Zen saying, everyone's noticing, I'll just remind you what it is. Try not to expect anything, in this way everything will open up to you. So as you go home, try not to expect anything. (laughs) In this way, everything will open up to you. So I'll close with a couple more things. So this is—I um, don't know where this is from. This is anonymous, at least to me. I asked God to take away my habit. God said, "No. It is for me to—it t- is not for me to take away, but for you to give it up." I asked God to, take my hand, to make my handicapped child whole. God said, no, his spirit is whole, his body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience. God said, no, patience is a byproduct of tribulations. It isn't granted, it is learned. By the way, if you have trouble with the word God, you can substitute whatever word works for you, but it doesn't really work unless you use the word here. I asked God to give me happiness. God said, no, I give you blessings. Happiness is up to you. I asked God to spare me pain. God said, no, suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow. He said, no, she said, no, you must grow on your own, but I will prune you to make you more fruitful. I asked God for all things that I might enjoy life. God said, no, I will give you life so that you may enjoy all things. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me. God said, ah, finally have the idea. And lastly, this is a, a poem from uh, the writer Diane Ackerman called School Prayer, which is really a beautiful um, prayer of intention of meta. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, and as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors, and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the utmost night, and the male and the female, and plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and apple, I will honor all life, wherever, and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth, my home, and in the mansions of the stars. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.